and welcome to episode 79 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This is Colin Yeo and I'm joined as ever by my colleague CJ. This month we're going to be starting with a few asylum decisions. We're going to talk a little about the Shamim Begum case, the latest on the coronavirus immigration changes. We're going to be having a look at the Hong Kong BNO visa, mention a couple of other things about immigration detention and access to benefits, and end with some rather disparate tribunal and procedural cases, always everybody's favourite. It is ridiculously hot as we record this, so please forgive CJ and I if we expire during recording forget our own names or, or something like that. Um, the stuff we're talking about is uh, from July 2000 and sorry 2020. And if you want to claim CPD points for reading the material and listening to the podcast, then sign up um, as a free movement member and head to freemovement.org.uk slash training. Right, CJ, over to you. We, first of all, have a bit of new ground broken in asylum law and specifically on the concept of a particular social group being persecuted for a membership of a particular social group is one of the routes to protection as a refugee under the UN Convention. And the meaning of that phrase, particular social group, is open to some debate. And so what we have in this case is a decision that someone, quote, living with disability or mental ill ill health, end quote, could qualify as a particular social group, depending on the facts of the case. And the upper tribunal has said that the key issue is how the asylum seeker is viewed in the eyes of a potential persecutor. So even if you don't suffer from mental illness, but your oppressors think that you do, then you might still qualify. And that's potentially a significant development. The case citation DH, particular social group, mental health, Afghanistan, 2020, UKUT 223 IAC. And Colin, is that going to open the floodgates for refugees with mental health problems or is it uh, going to be uh, a bit more uh, complicated than that? I don't think there's any floodgates issues with something like this. And I think to be fair, um, you know, it's not the first time that um, ill health, uh, mental, mental health basically has been used as, as a particular social group in a refugee case. But this is definitely the first time that I've seen a really good treatment of it for, by the upper tribunal. And it's a really nice, thorough decision um, not just on refugee law, but also quite helpful in kind of uh, exploring the nature and categorizations of, of what, what's described as mental health issues. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a really welcome, really interesting decision, well worth a read um, and, and very welcome. It's a bit like going back to the kind of 1990s classic era of, of tribunal stuff when uh, the tribunal was kind of breaking new ground and exploring what it really meant to be a refugee. So, yeah, I quite actually enjoyed reading the judgment. And our next case comes from Daniel Grutters of One Pump Court. And he, along with the Chamber's colleague, managed to get their client, an asylum seeker, brought back to the UK after being removed to Nigeria. Really remarkable circumstances. The the client had a pending appeal on his asylum claim as a gay man from Nigeria. The Home Office found him boarding a ferry to Belfast, detained him and decided what they'd do next. There was internal correspondence within the Home Office advising the criminal casework people not to remove him because of this pending appeal. Uh, But this team decided to seek a second opinion from the tribunal. They got a generic reply from a a clerk saying that an out-of-time appeal was not a barrier to removal, which they decided was more persuasive than the advice of their own colleagues who'd actually reviewed the file and advised them not to do this. And the upper tribunal ordered him brought back to see out his appeal said there would be serious implications for the rule of law if courts and tribunals did not treat 
deliberate or reckless law breaking as an extremely weighty consideration. This is pretty pretty heady stuff, Colin. Yeah, it is. Um, I know the, the tribunal kind of lets itself a little bit off the hook with this one because the wording by the clerk was certainly unfortunate, should we say? Um, but yeah, it's it, a bizarre sort of sequence of events by the Home Office here, and it's the sort of thing that you kind of yeah you, know, you can see that there was clearly a presumption that this person could and should be removed, and uh, that they were sort of looking for excuses to do that rather than. Um, safeguarding, you know, a person who might be a genuine refugee. And it's the sort of thing that you'd expect to see from, um, officials who are driven by removals targets or, or, or a sort of very negative and unhealthy cult- culture within the Home Office. So, um, you know, disappointing, but, but not, you know, not that surprising to those of us who do this work on a regular basis. Um, but what, what is good to see is it, it's a, it's a good upper tribunal decision. It's good to see the tribunal recognize the seriousness of the behavior by home office officials in this case. Um, and, and it's a good final result as well. I mean, it's pretty unusual to see the upper tribunal, uh, making an order for return. And in fact, I can't really think of any previous examples now that I now say that of, of the upper tribunal making one of these orders. We've seen it from the administrative court before occasionally, um, but not, I think, from the upper tribunal. So um, yeah, flexing flexing their, their muscles a little bit in this one, which is good to see. All right. So we're two from two for positive upper tribunal judgment so far then. Uh, let's go to the third in the asylum category. There's one on Dublin three returns. Uh, which we might may not discuss at, at great length, in fact, because there's a very extensive headnote to it. So I'll just give the citation. RBAA and another versus Secretary of State for the Home Department, Dublin 3, Judicial Review, SOS's Duties, 2020, UKUT 227 IAC. Was there anything you noticed from that column that you wanted to pull out? It's to do with Article 17.2 of, of, of Dublin 3, which is where um, somebody is applying to be transferred to another country on humanitarian grounds, on family or cultural considerations. Um, so it, it's quite topical given that um, at the time that we're recording, you know, kind of um, Dublin and small boat crossings of the channel are, are, are very much in the news. But you know, it, it's hard to get that excited about Dublin stuff, as we say in the blog post, when um, it probably isn't long for this world and doesn't, doesn't last beyond the end of 2020. Absolutely. Well, speaking of things that are in the news, let's do citizenship deprivation. There was a high-profile decision in the Shamima Begum case in July. Citation 2020 WCA Civ 918. The facts of the Shamima Begum case are well known. She lost her British citizenship and in a previous appeal, it was found that she's a dual citizen of Bangladesh, so she wouldn't be left stateless. Now, she didn't challenge that statelessness findings here, but the Court of Appeal did find that the lower court should look again at her human rights arguments and, uh, crucially, that she should get to come back to the UK to attend the remaining stages of her appeal in person, which seems seems like really good tactical lawyering, I guess, on the part of her solicitors, because as soon as she sets foot in the UK, even if she ultimately loses her British citizenship, it doesn't seem like she could ever be, she certainly can't be sent back to a Syrian camp, right? Yeah, it seems unlikely. Well, she couldn't be sent back to a Syrian camp. I mean, arguably she could be sent to Bangladesh, of course, if she's been found to be um, a Bangladeshi citizen. And she she hasn't challenged that finding, as you say. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's certainly going to be helpful to her, I guess. Um, but... You know, the 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 alternative was that she would 
have to endure an unfair trial. And as the Court of Appeal said, that's just not acceptable, basically. So they were looking for an alternative, and this seems to be the only realistic alternative. Um, I imagine that the um, the order wasn't made lightly, especially with the um, pressure, I think, that the government has been putting on the judiciary in, in recent years in these kinds of issues. Um, we don't know what the ultimate decision is going to be still. This isn't a kind of final outcome. It just an, allows her to argue her case properly from from here within the UK. Um, she's still going to have to argue the kind of merits of her case. And, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see which way that goes, because I, I don't think the arguments are, are all one way by any stretch of the imagine in this, in this case, um, by which I mean all one way in favor of the government. I mean, obviously what she's done is, 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 is very bad. Um, but, um, you know, she was very young and, um, you know, the, the way that citizenship deprivation is being used does on the face of it seem pretty discriminatory and it doesn't seem right that somebody born British and raised in this country can be deprived of their citizenship in this way. So there could be a kind of you know, wider argument about what a public good really means in this kind of context. Absolutely. And I suppose even before we get to the merits of her appeal, there will be a Supreme Court appeal on this order to bring her back. So there's a long way to go in this whole saga. And she remains in Syria uh, pending that Supreme Court appeal. Let's just do a quick coronavirus update. The main area of interest now that the system is opening up again is what happens to people who've been getting these coronavirus visa extensions via that online form over the past six months. And the latest word is that you need to leave the country by the end of August uh, under what they're describing as a grace period over the month of August. And if you reckon you can't leave by the 31st of August, there's still travel restrictions or, or serious health concerns or whatever it is, uh, you can apply for exceptional indemnity by contacting the coronavirus helpline. So it's a pretty hard cutoff at the 31st of August, but with still some flexibility after that. So that's the latest Home Office position. As we discussed before, the legal basis for these maneuvers of grace periods and exceptional indemnities a little uncertain. Yeah, it's difficult to see why the Home Office is just... is is digging in so hard on this and refusing to to grant leave in a clear and more obviously lawful way. And all this business about exceptional indemnity, well, it's not leave. People will be here unlawfully. They'll be they'll be committing a criminal offence. They're not going to be prosecuted for it, but they will be committing a criminal offence. And it's hard to imagine that the Home Office will... Um, and the, the rumour is that the Home Office is, is introducing immigration rules which will effectively retrospectively... Um, overlook any periods of overstay or anything like that. Um, that's not the same as just granting leave. And wouldn't it have just been easier to grant leave in the first place? Um, so it's a bit of a mystery why the Home Office is behaving in this way. They seem to be making life hard for themselves as, as well as for migrants in, in a completely unnecessary and really miserly way. So yeah, not, not, not very welcome at all. Yeah, coming soon to the Court of Appeal in 2021, all this uh, shenanigans, no doubt. Yeah, well, uh, the first time somebody faces deportation, basically, and there's a question of lawful residence, this is going to be argued front and centre. Um, and maybe that's what the Home Office game is, that they they want to kind of increase the precarity, if that's the right word, of, of people's um, presence so that they can make use of that to get rid of people they don't like. And they're not too bothered that other people's lives are made insecure in the meantime. Let's go to Hong Kong. We now have almost all the details for the new visa being offered to Hong Kongers who have British national overseas status. 
the route will open in January and people will get a standard two and a half year visa, uh, not not a five year visa as was originally indicated, although that you can request uh, a five year term in sort of exceptional circumstances. Uh, settlement follows as usual after five years and people already in the UK will be able to switch onto this BNO visa from January. In the meantime, anyone who, who turns up at the border can be granted leave outside the rules to allow them to stay on in the meantime. Uh, so lots there for uh, Hong Kongers who may wish to uh, flee the Chinese state. One important omission is how much this visa will cost when it officially launches in January. Um, although we do know that it will attract the immigration health surcharge, which will probably be more than the visa cost anyway. So it's going to be expensive no matter what. So those are the basics. Any anything to add, Carl? Just to say, really, I suppose that you know we, we know that there's a limited number of people that have this status. Um, by by limited, I don't mean small. I, it could be as many as three million people, but it's it's a defined group, and nobody born um, after 1997 um, can now acquire that status. So it's sort of historically limited. Um, but one thing that I, I noticed on in John's pieces, um, John who's been writing up our Hong Kong stuff, John Vasiliou, and um, he's pointed out that the policy on um, bringing adult dependent children looks surprisingly generous. So um, I, I did wonder whether that might be a potential route for, basically because you know the, the media coverage and how how true this is on the ground in Hong Kong, I, I don't know. But in the media coverage, we've seen the the protests have mainly involved young people and been led by young people. None of them could be BNOs. Um, so you know the kind of most vulnerable group of people in in Hong Kong aren't the ones who can actually make use of this this visa. Um, but um, if they turned out to be dependent adult children of people who do have BNO status, then they might have a, a route um, because of the apparently, you know, it's, it's written in coded language, but relatively generous um, provisions on adult dependent children, more more generous than the rules would normally be expected to be, at least. Absolutely. Normally very uh, difficult to get uh, dependent family members in. Uh, let's talk about immigration detention. There's a High Court judgment on the interpretation of the immigration bail provisions of the Immigration Act 2016. The finding is that the Home Office can set immigration bail conditions for someone, even if they can't be put in immigration detention. So, for example, to require someone without leave to remain to report to a police station every so often. Alex wrote this up for us and says that the result isn't surprising because that was the whole point of the 2016 Act and arguments to the contrary had to go up against the express wording. Uh, nevertheless, valiantly argued, uh, the name of the case, Katie, K-A-I-T-E-Y, 2020 EWHC 1861 admin. Uh, Alex also has some interesting data via the good people at Duncan Lewis about Rule 35 reports. And these are supposed to be issued by doctors in detention centres to highlight vulnerabilities among immigration detainees, uh, often associated with uh, torture wounds, but not confined to torture cases. And what we see in this freedom of information data is that you do get reports on the indications of torture under Rule 35.3, but doctors are not using Rules 35.1 and 2 to highlight uh, suicidal uh, feelings among detainees or uh, deteriorating health. Uh, Only five reports on suspected uh, suicidal ideations across the entire detention state in 2019. So evidence, uh, they say that's Rule 35 uh, really isn't working very well and the full FOI is available 
online to download in full. We'll look at uh, benefits. We've done some work on migrants' access to benefits. It's quite topical at the moment. The Home Office has released some info on the number of people applying to have their visa condition of no recourse to public funds lifted or waived. Uh, there's been a huge increase, uh, most likely because people are losing their jobs because of the coronavirus recession. There were almost 5,700 applications to lift no recourse to public funds in Q2 2020, so the months of April, May, June, compared to 914 in the same quarter last year. That's an increase of over 500%. Yeah, and it's still quite small numbers in comparison to you know the number of migrants that we know are in the UK. Um but very worrying, and I'm not quite sure what's happened to those applications. You know, I don't know if they're being decided promptly or, or what by the Home Office. So um, a worrying sign, and it's going to, you know, it's likely to get worse given the, the economic outlook looks so bleak at the moment. Yeah, I think in terms of promptly, there is a big backlog now, um, but I think about 90% of those applications are being granted. So it's, it's they're piling up, but a lot of them are being lifted, which is good. Uh, a quick mention as well for a briefing that Alex Pletska has done on EU citizens' entitlement to benefits, focusing on universal credit, which is now, I think, the main welfare payment for people experiencing uh, hardship or unemployment. And it discusses how EU citizens with pre-settled status can prove that they have a right to reside, which is a condition for being entitled to benefits in the first place. Uh, it's on the website, the headline, can EU citizens with pre-settled status claim universal credit? So we are coming to the, towards the end, but we have a decision by costs in the context of CARS judicial reviews, or EBA judicial reviews, as I think they're known in Scotland. Uh, we might have, might have to assume that listeners know what a CART case is to save on time, but uh, the decision is about when costs are assessed if a CART judicial review is successful. And the Court of Appeal holds here that costs are a matter for the upper tribunal when the case returns there and not for the High Court when it orders the appeal to be reopened. And that case, JH Palestinian Territories versus Upper Tribunal 2020 EWCA Civ 919. Yeah, and it, it's, um, it's a case that might strike fear into cart litigators because um, it means that the costs of the, the specific bit of cart litigation, which is where you're judicially reviewing the refusal of the upper tribunal to grant permission to itself, um, the costs of the cart litigation won't now be dealt with separately. Um, so it means that you've got to win your, your whole case in order to get the costs of that, that cart bit of litigation. I suppose it is a relatively cheap bit of litigation, arguably, because it's not an oral hearing and so on. Um, but, you know, previously, if you'd won the cart case, then arguably you could have got your costs for that distinct phase a successful phase of the litigation, even if you ultimately went on to lose in front of the upper tribunal um, now that you kind of forced the issue of of permission. Um, but there are so few of these cases that there aren't going to be that many people affected by this. Uh, a good thing too, because <laughs> that does sound uh, like it would strike fear into people's hearts. Let's look at our little mixed bag of upper tribunal cases. One is about the definition of foreign criminal in deportation law. And the question was, does a hospital order under the Mental Health Act count as a criminal conviction in this context? Uh, the Home Office naturally argued that it does count as a criminal conviction, but the upper tribunal finds otherwise. The case is MZ Hospital Order, whether a foreign criminal, 2020 UKUT 225 IAC. 
Yeah, so it's a good example of um, a question that kind of answers itself, really, when you when you ask it. And the judge in this case actually says, in the sentencing judge actually says, this is not a conviction. Um, so it, it arguably, it's a bit surprising the Home Office tried to argue the point, but but you know, nothing should really surprise us about that these days. Indeed. Uh, also, a tribunal case on relying on your relationship with a child to resist removal from the UK. So this is section 117b6 of the Nationality, Immigration and Asylum Act 2002, where someone can rely on their relationship with a non-British child if the child has been living in the UK for seven years or more. And in this case, the man being removed had a three-year-old Polish daughter, and he argued that this seven-year rule, which obviously didn't apply to a three-year-old, uh, should be waived for an EU citizen relying on EU law. Uh, but he lost that argument. The upper tribunal found that seven years means seven years. Uh, the case MM section 117B6, EU citizen child, Iran, 2020, UK UT 224, IAC. Yeah, it's what we call an ambitious argument. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, it's, it's based on the kind of idea that EU citizens shouldn't be discriminated against and put in a less good position than British citizens. Um, maybe it might succeed, but, but it, it, it is nevertheless an ambitious argument. Finally, then a case on tax discrepancy cases or paragraph 3225 cases, as they're sometimes known. Basically, here the upper tribunal reiterates that if the Home Office treated people unfairly over accusations of tax irregularities, that unfairness is cured if the person gets an appeal in the first tier tribunal. Nat wrote up that case and says there's nothing really new in it, but it's been reported officially by the tribunal, so we mention it anyway. Uh, citation Ashfaq Baladigari Appeals 2020 UK UT 226 IAC. Yeah, it, they do seem to report some rather odd cases sometimes this in, this included some of them you know just repeating or reiterating points that have already been made in in previous cases um but i suppose it, it's important to remember that um a lot of the um tax discrepancy and also the um english testing certificate um uh, cases that the home office tried to deprive um applicants of a right of appeal by various or procedural means um so now that basically the tribunal is saying, well, now you've got your appeal, you know, <laughs> um, that, that's the point at which to argue it. And that remedies the procedural deficiencies that others were arguing about previously, which it seems fairly obvious, really. But there we go. OK, well, that wraps up this month. We hope that's been helpful. And um, neither of us expired, I think, during the, the, during the recording of this. So we'll be back next month. Goodbye. <laughs>